try to work this thing out. And I'm from here, I know he's not here with us, but I hope that uh, the Lord will continue to give him good health and healing, that he will be with us here uh, soon. Uh, so again, I'm looking forward to this time together. I hope uh, I will not bore you, especially that I know I'm competing with a great football game, and I know I probably <laughs> would always lose. So uh, I want to start by just uh, saying something about uh, our technology-saturated world in which we live in. We become so much dependent on the various gadgets that they are in part of our lives. Our phones that are now obviously handheld, they do much more than just talking and texting. We are able to uh, send live uh, information to all over the world instantly. Uh, we can take pictures. Nowadays you don't see people walking around with cameras, even tourists like me, sometimes that we travel. And of course, with our handheld gadgets, we can play games and do so many other things. In 2006, there were three Israelis by the name of Ehud Shabtai, Amir Shinar, and also Uri Levin. I know these names are a little bit hard to pronounce. But they founded uh, what is called Waze, a mobile company. Mm. Uh, this satellite navigation uh, software uh, can be used on your software, and nowadays most of us don't even use the GPS. And it provides us not only turn-by-turn -turn navigation, uh, but it's also free, so that's even, even better. In 2013, about seven years after they started the company, uh, Google bought the company for more than $1 billion, which is nowadays available in most some 50 languages uh, uh, as well. In Israel, obviously I still use Waze to guide me even when I have to drive to places that I know the direction. But it helps me often not only to know what's the traffic, but if you zoom kind of uh, out and in, you can see the direction where you are going. And that's also a great help. And the big picture often helps us to know which streets I would drive to and, uh, and the cities and places that I would be going to. It helps me to know and help us to know where we are going and what is ahead. I think when we look at the Bible, it also has a big picture, uh, or more accurately, a big story that is grand and also glorious. It's a story of who God is, what he has done, what he will do, but also how everything fits in that grand and glorious uh, story. The story helps us to, of course, navigate to the various books of the Bible, and passages and help us to understand where we are in that wonderful story. But it also allows us to know where we are headed. And that's also part of the nice thing about uh, Waze or a GPS system, that it also helps us to know where the direction is. Uh, it's good to also say uh, to know uh, where we are going today uh, in these three seminars and also our direction since we talked about ways and the navigation and the big story. So during our time together in the three seminars, I understand that later would be time for uh, Q&A. It's always the scary part of the lecture. <laughs> and we will talk about uh, the big story of the scripture, which is this uh, first seminar, uh, which is that 
So it's grand and glorious as we shall see. In the second session, we shall look at God's maintenance, I would call it, of the Jewish people and the restoration and the return of Israel to Israel. And lastly, for dessert, uh, we shall see the faithfulness of God and the future of Israel. I hope that uh, uh, this will be something that uh, uh, would be a, a blessing uh, to each and every one of you. I want to talk a little bit uh, at the beginning about God's revelation. Uh, I should talk about God's special revelation. Our triune God is a God of revelation, who in his endless wisdom reveals himself to us in various ways. The main means by which, of course, he has revealed himself to us is his written word, the scriptures, his special revelation as it's called. But he also has revealed himself to us by nature, through what often is called the general revelation. The Westminster Confession of Faith under chapter 1 of the Holy Scriptures states this. It says that although the nature and creation manifest enough of God to leave men inexcusable, yet it pleased God to reveal and declare his will for the good of his church and preservation of the truth, to commit them into writing, which is the Holy Scriptures. From the Old and the New Testaments, we learn the truth about God, His character, but also we learn much about who we are, mankind, and also God's plan for the world that He has created. In Scriptures, God in His kindness and goodness has given us a pattern and an order in His created world in our universe. We see it first in the six days of creation and the order by which he created. And then, of course, we see through his dealings with the patriarchs and Israel. And when God created the world, there was order and there was logic in how he created things and how he created the various elements. We know that the light was actually the first element that God created because the world was formless and dark, and the light was needed to support life. Man, on the other hand, was created on the last day of the creation, on the sixth day. And by then, the created world was such that it could sustain Adam and Eve, and they could live and survive in the world. So already in the creation, we see something of God's character out of his person, and in the creation, we see God's beauty, love, wisdom, but also his power. Now, in the grand story, God deals with his image bearers on the basis of covenant. Without going into the details of the various covenants, these were a gracious way and means by which God deals with mankind. I should say, his supreme creatures. And at the base of all the covenants that he made, including the first one, knowing as the covenant of works, is actually always God's grace. Grace functions in all of them, but it's seen in its most clear and obvious way in the new covenants. Inaugurated with Christ, Son of God, but also Son of David and Son of Abraham, connecting him to the Old Testament and to the Old Covenant. 
Now, after the creation, God maintained order in the world. The fact that every day the sun rises in the morning from the east and sets in the evening in the west, and then the moon takes over, provides the city with a pattern and a rhythm. The seasons of the year that come in an orderly manner help us to manage our lives and particularly enables the farmers, and I know there are many in this region, to raise their crops. In addition, the growth process of human beings and other creatures and obviously vegetation, it provides them a pattern and a rhythm that makes life more sensible and workable for us. And all of this helps us immensely to live our lives in an organized and a planned way. Now, God is not a God of chaos, but God of order and pattern. And as human beings, he needs stability. And God in his creation and throughout the world provides us with that. God in his great wisdom and from eternity past, determined to reveal himself to us. We know that without his revelation, we would not know who God is. His revelation is what enabled us to know and better understand him. It helps us to comprehend something about the eternal and infinite God with our limited and finite minds that have been corrupted by sins. But all that we know and all that we can know about him is due to the fact that in his gracious act, he has revealed himself to us, to his world, but also to the nature. And at the same time, his revelation is also progressive. As time passes, he reveals more and more of his character and particularly of his redemptive plans for mankind. When we read the scriptures from the Genesis to Revelation, we see the progression of that revelation very clearly. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament puts it in this way, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So it brings us back to the six days of creation. Long ago refers, of course, to the Old Testament era where God spoke to us by the prophets, or in fact, his mouthpiece. And in these last days, referring to the New Testament era, where he has spoken to us, to his son, to whom he created the world. And John, in referring to Christ as the world, as the Logos, shows us the climax of that revelation. Jesus himself said to Philip, he said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So in Christ, we see the embodiment of the very God himself. And in Colossians chapter 1, Paul speaks about Christ being the image of the invisible God that in him we see the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And later, in the same epistle, Paul writes about the mystery that has been revealed in the New Testament, a mystery that was hidden in the past for ages, namely from creation until the coming of the Messiah. But now in Christ, it has been revealed. Furthermore, Paul became a minister to make that word known. And a few verses 
later in Colossians 2, verses 2, he explains the purpose of his call by telling us that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to which all the riches of the full assurance of the understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So we see how with time, God revealed more and more of himself, and of course, fully in Christ. What the people in the Old Testament saw in shadow, we now see it realized in Christ is the substance. One of the things that I keep reminding our children and also our congregation uh, is the privilege that we have not only to live in this time in the history after the coming of Christ and his resurrection, but also after the canon of the scriptures has been sealed. And as a result, we can now see the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament as their substance, and it's, uh, which is, of course, is in Christ. So we don't see things anymore in shadows, but in reality. We now have the complete revelation of God, and there is no mystery that needs to be known, that has not been revealed. We see now God's plan clearly. But God, in his goodness, not only has determined that his revelation be progressive, but that he would deal with his supreme creatures by covenant, as I mentioned earlier. In the beginning, he created one man, made a covenant with him. That covenant was a covenant that required obedience from Adam and Eve. He commanded that they could eat of the fruit of any tree in the Garden of Eden, except the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Because God alone would determine what is right and what is wrong. What is good and what is evil. God and not man has to be the compass or the compass by which morality is determined. But Adam in his free will choose to believe the lie of the serpent rather than the firm warning of God where he says, you shall surely die. In Hebrew, it's a compound verb that says, mot tamotun, which is, you definitely or surely shall die. It's a vital at this beginning stage of God's dealing with man that, that he would understand that, that we would understand that grace and kindness is also part of that pattern. Genesis chapter 3, which is the most tragic chapter in the scripture, the darkest page in the history of mankind, we see God's grace in function. The result of Adam and Eve's disobedience was so devastating that it literally changed the course of the history of mankind. And not for better, but rather for worse. And yet, despite the promise of God, that they would surely die, the physical aspect of that promise was delayed. Though spiritually they certainly died immediately, but the physical death came only later. Now we can see already in the behavior of Adam and Eve the change and the corruption that seemed what? It corrupted their minds, it corrupted their hearts, and of course also their will. They first tried to hide from God, 
and then they blame each other without the ability to take responsibility for their action or power to seek forgiveness from God. This pattern of the disobedience to the Creator continues also, and interestingly, we see it vividly even in the last book of the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 1, beginning with verse 6, God brings his indictment against Israel and the priest by saints in verse 6 and 7 days. So the son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts you. O priest who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. God accused them of bringing polluted, blind, and lame animals as sacrifice. And then they replied to God, saying, the problem is not our animals, but you, your altar, your table, that's the problem. The pattern of blame shifting continued from Adam onwards. Adam and Eve tried to cover their shame with a fig leaf, an action that would be repeated again and again by mankind, thinking that they could cover or pay for their sins. In fact, all of the religions, that's what they offer. But I know we know that God in his mercy allowed them to live and not die immediately. No doubt, God brought the curse of sin upon both of them, but also upon the serpent. And God, in fact, exiled them from the Garden of Eden, but not before he covered them with the skin of an animal. Blood was needed in order to provide that covering of the animal, appointed to the sacrificial system, and eventually to the blood of the Lamb of God, that would take away the sins of the world. Of course, God, by guarding the tree of life against Adam and Eve, we can see yet another act of God's mercy, providing an undeserved merit. And by protecting the tree of life, God did not kept us, keep us in the state of our sin forever. Thomas Boston, the Puritan in his classic word, human nature and his fourfold state, covered the first two states, the innocent states and the sin state. Now we can imagine uh, what the horrible life we would have on this earth if we would have lived eternity in our state of sin. But in the goodness of God, in his grace alone, he turned death actually as a scapegoat to the state of glory, passing from this sinful world into the glorious presence of God where there is no sin, no tears, and no fear or pain. And in the midst of that tragic act of our representative Adam and Eve, we see a great promise of hope. In Genesis 3.15, God speaks these words. He said, I will put the enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, or your sin and her sin. He shall bruise you your head on your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This promise is often called by the theologian the Proto-Evangelium, which means 
the first gospel. I remember very clearly the first time that two Gentile Christians in San Diego shared the gospel with me. They asked me if I was familiar with Genesis 3. And I kind of sarcastically told them, of course I know, I'm, I'm a Jew. Uh, and this is our scriptures. But then they read this verse to me, Genesis 3.15, and asked me if I knew what it meant. And to my shame, I didn't. And then after sharing the, some of the Old Testament prophecies about Messiah, uh, from the various prophets, uh, particularly Isaiah and Jeremiah, which I somewhat was more familiar with, they moved on to the New Testament and they showed about Jesus being the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. That, of course, made me very nervous and even mad. But in the end, they said that Jesus is indeed the seed of the woman that we read about in Genesis 3.15. That was the initial work of the Holy Spirit in my life that eventually brought me to my knees. But in the, in the curse of the serpent, there's a great hope for Adam and the whole world. And it's this quote that continues from there all the way to the last chapter of the book of Revelation. And this is the great and the glorious story. The scriptures from this point on show us the depth of the enmity between the powers of darkness and the forces of light. But they also clearly show the faithfulness of God in what he has promised. God keeps and protects the seed of the woman to the ages to accomplish his promise in Genesis 3.15. And eventually, the seed of the woman who survived through Seth, and then Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David, brings forth our Messiah. The very first words of the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is the son of David and son of Abraham. In fact, all the 66 books of the scripture point in one way or another to the way that God throughout history would not only preserve and protect the seed of the woman, but he would defeat and bruise the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman in his active and passive obedience would turn around the curse of sin to the blessing of salvation for the sons of man and the whole creation. Such is the faithfulness of God to his promises. The golden thread that we see in Genesis 3 continues, and we see again and again the unfaithfulness and the corruption of man and the hope and the salvation of God at the same time. In fact, very soon as the corruption of man increased to an intolerable level, God destroyed everything except one man, Noah, or Noah as we say in Hebrew, and his family. Through them, he reestablished the world, or so to speak, recreated the world. And further down in the book of Genesis, we read how God revealed himself to Abraham and made a covenant with him and gave him many promises and even a new name. He called Abraham to leave his homeland, Genesis 12, and we will talk about that later on in the second seminar, Haran, and to go to the land where God would show him. So this was the beginning, actually, of the story of the Jewish people, the wandering Jews, as we are often called. As Abraham wandered, 
in the parts of the Middle East of our days. And this is in a sense also my story as I was born in Israel, lived in Iran and in age of 16 ended up in San Diego. So by age of 16 I have already lived in three different countries. So you see we are indeed wandering Jews. <laughs> Uh, God again and again reassured Abraham of his promise to him. And in order to help Abraham believe these promises and trust him, God made a ceremonial covenant with him. And in that ceremony, which, was, uh, which we read about in Genesis 15, God not only, only, not only made promises to Abraham, but asked him to bring three animals. He told him to bring a heifer, a ram, and a goat, and to cut them in half, as was the custom of those days in the ancient Near East. Normally, in ceremonies of this time, when a covenant was cut, and usually the Hebrew word is actually cutting a covenant and not making a covenant, both parties would pass between those two cut animals, and as they would pass, they would say, may it be unto me like these animals, if I do not keep my part of that promise of that covenant. Today it's much easier, we just sign the paper and that's it. Life is much easier. But in establishing the covenant with Abraham, only one party passed through the cut animals, and it wasn't Abraham. God alone passed between the cut animals in a form of a torch, declaring as it were, may it be done unto me as these cut animals, if I will not keep my promises. In this act of God, we see clearly that the fulfillment and the promise of the covenant made with Abraham was solely dependent on God and God alone. God alone walked the path. He alone walked between the cut animals. And in the cutting of that covenant, there, there were many promises that were made to Abraham. And again, a pattern that would be seen again and again as God would be the covenant keeper and we as the covenant breaker. In these two events in Genesis, the fall and the cutting of the covenant with Abraham we see that pattern repeated again and again in the scripture. And that pattern is about the faithfulness of God to his promises that is not, it's not dependent on the performance of man, but God alone. He would always be the covenant keeper while we would always remain the covenant breaker. And these elements of the story continue throughout the Old and the New Testament and even today in our times. God always keeps his promises and fulfills all that he has promised to do. However, we too often break our promises because either we are not able or we don't want to keep our promises. And this is evident throughout the pages of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, but again and again in the history of the church and also in our own lives. The pages of the biblical history as well as uh, history are filled with accounts of God's faithfulness and man's lack of it. It's also true in the history of the church 
even and maybe particularly today. Immediately after God brought out the people of Israel from Egypt with a mighty hand and a stretched arm, we built a golden calf and we said, this is the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the book of Joshua, that can be easily divided into two parts. The first 12 chapters is about conquering the land and the last 12 chapters is about dividing the land between the, the tribes. Uh, we see again and again that people of God continue to sin and yet God miraculously gave them the land by the fall of the Jericho wall and later on it opened the door for conquering of the land. But we read in, already in verse 1 of chapter 7 of Joshua but the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. In the book of Judges, the next one, uh, we see a circle of anarchy and a vicious pattern. People of Israel sin, God would bring them an enemy who would enslave them, then they would cry to God, and he would send them a judge, leader, who would save them. And this pattern repeats itself again and again. But every judge is worse than the previous one. And the book ends with these words in chapter 21, verse 25. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This phrase is actually repeated three times toward the end of the book of Judges. So everyone did what was right in his own eyes and not in the eyes of God. That was not a good period to live in. Anarchy happens when there is no rule and there is no authority. And everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Maybe it reminds us of this past two, two years, some of the things that happen when everyone has his own truth. And it's the absolute truth from their point of view. And it's right in his or her own eyes. You remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we talked about earlier in the Garden of Eden? We continue to eat from the same tree because we want to set what is right and what is wrong, what is evil and what is good. Just as one example, we can consider Samson in the book of Judges. In Judges 14 verse 3, we read that, but Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And we know what happened to him later on. More than that, the book of Judges, we see men treating women horribly. Samson treated Delilah more as a toy than a wife. Then we read about the concubine and the Gibeah kind in Judges. Later on, we see the samples of how men treated badly the woman. And then in the last chapter, chapter 21, we read about how they attained virgins as wife for the tribe of Benjamin. They were taken, women were taken back then Granted. I think the Me Too movement would have flourished then also. But then comes immediately the Book of Ruth, where women are treated as ladies with respect and dignity that all women who are created in the image of God deserve. In the Book of Ruth, we see Boaz as the kind of the kinsman redeemer, pointing ultimately to Christ with David being the last word in the book of food. In the early history of the people of Israel, we see the same glorious story and the goodness of God despite the sin and the fall of mankind. 
The book of Samuel opens a new era in the history of Israel. The kingship and the kingdom of Israel and Judah. In that kingship era, while there were short times of spiritual prosperity, particularly during King David and Asa and Hezekiah, and the handful of, uh, of others who did what was right in the sight of God. The majority, the large majority of them, did what was evil in the sight of God. Of course, as a result of that, and despite of that, everything that they did evil, and even the exile of the northern kingdom that happened in 1724 BC, and later on the southern kingdom that happened in 586, yet the story didn't end at the exile. One would have expected that God would give up and would choose a better people and a better nation. But he didn't. In fact, right in the midst of the Babylonian exile, Jeremiah encourages the exile by this helpful word in Jeremiah 29, 11, where it says, For I know the, plan I the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Imagine what great encouragement these words of the Lord must have been to the defeated people of Israel in exile. God never gives up no matter what. And this is a huge blessing for us to know that this is also in our times and the challenges that each one of us face today. God would always remain faithful, not because of our performance, but despite of it. And because he's a God that acts according to his character. And as a conclusion, we know that the climax of this story is to be found in the incarnation of the Son of God, the one who were flesh and tabernacled among us, the one who knew no sin, became sin for sinners. He lived a sinless life, and in the end, allowed a sinful hands to nail him to the cross. But no, it wasn't the Roman nails that kept Christ on the cross, but it was his love and the faithfulness of God that kept him on that cross to the end. And when God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son whom he loved, God provided a ram, a substitutionary sacrifice. But for his own son, there was nothing and no one who could replace him. But Christ had to pay the full price so that in his death, we would have life. And in his, in his resurrection, we may have a great hope. So in Christ, we have life in the present and hope for the future. When I was converted ages ago to a New Life OPC, and I was mentioned about Lee House in San Diego, and to the ministry of the navigators, in the rallies we would often sing a song that I remember it very clearly in my mind. And I can hear it in my head. But I would say to sing it to you because I don't want you to run away. So. <laughs> but the song was about the blessed assurance that we have. And the refrain of the song was this. This is my story. This is my life. Praising my Savior all day long. Well, this is his story. It's not 
my story and it's not your story but it's his story and he's alone and it's grand and glorious and he deserves all our praises amen let's pray Holy Father, we thank you for bringing us to the top of the mountain and showing us uh, your glory throughout the story that we read from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And all that you have done uh, for the good of your people, not because there's anything good in us, but because of who you are and because that you are the good God, the wise God, the faithful God and to you we bring all the honor and the glory and to you alone and we ask this in Christ's precious name to give us life and hope in the future. Amen. I'm not sure what our planned time is for today. Well, we have questions. All right, let's, let's take some questions. Stay, stay, stay right there. For, uh, another. We got 30 minutes, right?